That's cool. I don't mind a bit of space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're fine. Fifth of July. Oh, yeah. Well, once again, let me say what a joy it is to be able to be with you today and uh, a greeting to all those who are watching online, but a special greeting too, and we've kind of neglected this um, demographic for a while. There are a number of people who are still listening to us on 98.5 The Light FM, and it's great to have you with us as well. We just pray that you will be blessed as uh, we continue our journey today in Ruth chapter 1 and as you continue to connect with us here at the Wodongan District Baptist Church. My thanks again too to the team who have put the service together and who have uh, participated with us today. This might date me a little bit but um, I don't know whether you might be familiar with a song that Amy Grant used to sing years ago called Angels Watching Over Me. It's a song that kind of talked about the possibility that sometimes God would use his angels to just guide us or to intervene with us in life and Amy Grant sang about how a person who might have just done something special for you may have in fact been an angel or technically the word is a messenger from God. Uh, the suggestion in the song is that random people who help in a moment of crisis might just be an angel in disguise. And while this might be true, I think there are actually times when God brings people into our lives who are actually real people, but who are agents of his sovereign grace. People who have particular skills or people who have particular experience or people who just are available and God speaks through them in that moment when we need it. I can think of occasions even in my own life when somebody said something that's kind of out of left field in a way uh, or has done something that I didn't expect but it's helped me see something with some clarity or it's helped me with a decision that I've had to make or it's helped me avoid some kind of pitfall that I might have fallen into and in that I see God's sovereign hand and perhaps you can think of occasions too and you might if you're meeting together in a, uh, a neighbourhood church today 
you might want to talk about that very thing. When have you seen God use someone else in your life as an agent of his sovereign grace? Last week, we spent some time in Ruth chapter 1 and thought about the manner in which Naomi uh, responded when disaster overtook her, when her husband died, when her sons died, when it appeared that her life in many respects had hit a wall of catastrophe. And uh, I've got to say, I, as I've read this and reflected on it, I've, I've come more and more to appreciate her faith because it's real, isn't it? It's a faith that expresses all of its hope and its doubt together. And so uh, we, we resonate in some respects with that. There's a risk Uh, looking at this of concluding that Naomi had become somewhat self-absorbed towards the end of the chapter but one of the things that we did make note of last week and take note of again is that although Naomi's faith and her theology may have had some rough edges around them there remained in her a deep confidence that God was real and that in some way he was at work in her life she couldn't see it she didn't necessarily find ways of articulating it but she knew it in fact if you have a look at the uh, the passage there in verse 20 to 21 we'll read that in a few moments Uh, the Lord says the almighty has made my life bitter you know that word almighty actually is translated from the Hebrew El Shaddai which means the powerful God you know the provider God the judge God the the sovereign God and so even in her crisis of faith, Naomi actually acknowledged the almightiness of God. Well, this week we're going to turn our attention in chapter 1 to Ruth's part in this chapter, not to contrast the two uh, in a sense, because I think that would be unfortunate, but we can say this of Ruth. She actually is someone who was sent by God, God's sovereign plan at work into Naomi's life, to, uh, to do something really special in the face of this crisis. And the way that she responds, the way that she articulates her faith in verses 16 through to 18, which is where we're going to spend a bit of our time, actually points us to something far deeper than just an allegiance that she declared to Naomi. It actually points us to the gospel again and to what true conversion is all about. In a way, it's an Old Testament preempting of a New Testament concept and I want to unpack that because it's really uh, significant and it actually speaks really appropriately to us uh, today where we're at. The passage is Ruth, we're going to read Ruth chapter 1 verses 1 to 22. Again I invite you to join me with this passage. In the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land so a man named Elimelech, along with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. His name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahalon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab to live there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they'd lived about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab 
that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her two daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has been turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth and the Moab, uh, sorry, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. We don't know a whole lot about Ruth's background other than the fact that she was from Moab. And of course, as I explained last week, Moab was a nation uh, on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, on the opposite side of the Jordan River, outside the boundaries of the people of Israel, away there from Judah, probably about 100 kilometres or so as the crow flies. It's in the area that's currently uh, occupied by Jordan and it's accessed by the King's Highway, which is possibly the highway that um, Naomi and her family travelled on and a highway that exists to this very day. We know that the Moabites and the Israelites shared a common ancestor. It goes all the way back to Lot. And uh, unfortunately, history would tell us the Moabites were descendants through an incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters, very unfortunate in the eyes of God. And so they were considered by the Israelites as Gentiles outside the covenant and, uh, and generally wouldn't have much to do with them, although we know there were times where there was peace between Israel and Moab, there were times of war, and of course there was movement backwards and forwards at various stages as well. We know from the text that Ruth married Mahlon, one of Naomi's sons. We find that out in chapter 4. 
And as far as we can tell, the marriage lasted 10 years, although no children were born to them in that stage at that time. This probably needs to be understood as part of God's sovereign hand at work too. We know from the flow of the story that we touched on again and we've just read that Naomi planned to return to Judah. And that, as I said last week too, is a reflection of Naomi's faith because she heard that the Lord was providing for his people in Judah and so wanted to go back and uh, be part of that. And for Ruth, uh, Ruth makes an enormous commitment to go with her and we shouldn't underestimate that or understate it in any way whatsoever because the future that Naomi painted and she was she was very honest, she was brutally honest in a way, was not a very pretty picture, was it? What's, what is there for you, my daughter, she said, basically. There is nothing that I can offer you. And the fact is the future for Naomi did really look pretty grim. Her family line had potentially been extinguished. She would return to Judah uh, very vulnerable. She would go without protection. She would go without the security afforded by a family. Uh, She would be going into a very dangerous situation. And the fact is getting enough food to eat would have been a real challenge for her. It would have been a daily challenge for Naomi to live. And something of Ruth's character is reflected for us here in verses 16 to 18. These verses are uh, perhaps the high point in this chapter, one of the most beautiful words in the book and really, really rich in sentiment. You know, I I don't know how many people I've married over the years who've said, oh, we'd love to have this verse in our wedding as part of our commitment to one another. They are lofty words, you know, it's a great promise. But they can only be understood properly as part of God's sovereign preparation for the deeper revelation of the gospel that's going to follow through the rest of this book. This is not the high point of the book. This statement by Ruth is not the high point of the book. It's a preparation for what God is doing and God is at work doing through this book because God is at work bringing redemption from hopelessness. He's actually going to redeem a situation that looks to all intents and purposes as though there's no hope at all and the fact of the matter is that Ruth went on to become an ancestor of David who of course is an ancestor of Jesus and so we can see God's hand sewing together this history in an amazing way. It would actually be quite easy to misunderstand Ruth's confession of love for Naomi merely as an expression of deep affection or friendship or loyalty but it's actually a whole lot more than that. It can only be understood in light of her commitment to God. This commitment that she's prepared to make to Naomi is not just a commitment to Naomi, it is actually a reflection of something that sits deeper in her life, in Ruth's life. It's her commitment to God. And it's it's an Old Testament explanation, if you like, or an Old Testament foreshadowing of what Christian conversion really looks like. Let me explain by uh, showing you four, uh, four points or four kind of elements to that. They're really worth running through because 
in a really wonderful way, this passage does foreshadow, and typically in the Old Testament this is what happens, it foreshadows what is yet to come. It's a, a type or a pattern of what follows. And Ruth's confession is a pattern of what follows later on. First and foremost, Ruth's commitment to the living God uh, is one that um, is deep. Ruth was committed to the God who'd revealed himself in the Bible. You notice in the text that Ruth's commitment includes this statement. She says, your God will be my God. Ruth was from Moab. Moabites typically worship Chemosh, the God of Moab. We don't know what it was that, uh, that changed Ruth's allegiance. It may well have been the faithful witness of, of Naomi. It may have just been the way that she saw this family worship. We don't know what it was. But she had chosen to place her allegiance wholly with the God of Israel. And in her declaration, Ruth actually uses the word Jehovah. That's the covenant name for God. That's significant. That means that she had put her, uh, her life in the hands of the God of Israel. She'd entered into a new covenant relationship. And we understand that this happens through Jesus Christ when we come into relationship with God. But like all Old Testament believers, Ruth could only do that from afar. But the change of heart that Ruth had is the same as the change of heart that we need to have or we have had when we've come into relationship with God. A person who's truly converted changes their allegiance from this or that to the living God and that's the declaration that Ruth makes. The second thing we highlight about Ruth's commitment to Naomi is that she was committed to the people of God. It's not just a commitment to the Lord, it's actually a commitment to God's people. And this is another element, another important element of true Christian conversion. In Ruth, uh, sorry, yeah, Ruth chapter 1 verse 16, Ruth says to Naomi, your people will be my people. And we see this evidenced in the lives of others through the Old Testament and through the New Testament. If you were with us here at Wodonga uh, at the Baptist Church last year, you might remember us working our way through the book of Joshua and we met Rahab. Who, uh, who welcomed the spies. Rahab's one who made a commitment to God's people and was ultimately incorporated into God's covenant community. We see this incorporation into the people or the commitment to the people of God in someone like Paul. You know, for a time and in our studies in the book of Acts, which we just put on pause for the time being, uh, Paul's Saul, as he was known, was running around persecuting God's people. Uh, but at his conversion on the road to Damascus, what's the first thing that he does? He goes and spends time with the very people that he was persecuting. At first they were a bit leery about that. But here's the point. When we make a commitment to God, we make a commitment to God's people. And one of the effects of the Pentecost event, and we've talked about that over these past few weeks as we've been working our way through the book of Acts as well, is that when God formed his church, his people became committed to one another. Our commitment to God is always reflected in our commitment to others. Now, having said that, uh, one of the challenges of this COVID-19 period is this. 
um, people have, and I'm hearing this uh, both literally and um, and metaphorically, people have been come, have become accustomed to, and have become quite comfortable doing church on their own. Um, I've had lots of conversations with people who talk about, you know, it's fantastic. I can just, I can wear my pajamas to church. I can grab a coffee and sit there in my mockies and and do church. Um, I can fast forward the preaching. <laughs> there's a there's a plan. Um, don't do that, by the way. And I make kind of light of that reality. Um, I understand for some that is a reality and I do make light of it. But the fact of the matter is, let's be really honest, for some people it is easier and it has become easier. Perhaps for the wrong reasons though. Perhaps for reasons that mean that we don't have to engage with people who make us feel a bit uncomfortable perhaps for reasons that stretch us a bit. I know um, I used to have a friend who would say to me when his daughters, he had four or five of them, I think, uh, when they were young, they had to come from church. It was a 40 or 50 kilometre drive. He said, without fail, every Sunday, there'd be a fight in the back seat. It's easier not to go. It's a real struggle. It's easier not to rub shoulders with people who push our buttons. It's easier, but it's not biblical. One of the signs of true conversion, one of the signs of true heart change is actually a commitment to God's people. And one of the challenges that we're going to face uh, moving ahead, even these weeks, is figuring out how do we actually come together with others and be committed to one another. It's one of the elements of true Christian conversion that we need to attend to and we need to be proactive about uh, acting on. It makes sense then that in light of this to note that true conversion also involves a readiness to share in the joys and the sorrows of God's people. You see, Ruth had to leave her mother, her father, brothers and sisters perhaps. And as I've already said, the picture that Naomi painted was not a pretty picture. The rich young ruler of Luke chapter 18 Uh, was asked by Jesus to count the cost and he said, it's too much, I can't do it. New believers who come to Christ from an Islamic context have to make this same decision. Do we go uh, with this heart change which is going to come at a significant cost, the cost of ostracism, the cost of being cast out, the cost of persecution even? but they choose to align themselves with Christ and his church uh, to commit themselves to share in the joys and sorrows with God's people. That's what it means to be truly converted. And the fourth evidence that we see here in Ruth's declaration is an active perseverance in faith. She said to Naomi, where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. You know, one of the great sadnesses for me as I look back over my life and think about some of the people that I've met, some that I've journeyed with uh, through a youth group as a young person who I've been in ministry alongside as colleagues, even people who, uh, who were ordained around the same time I was, is to see how on those occasions they declared their love and commitment for God but have walked away from the church.
Peter said, make your calling and your election sure. And for any one of us to stand in front of the congregation and declare our love for the Lord or to do that through being baptised in front of the community, it is a very solemn and serious commitment. It's a very solemn and serious commitment. And God takes it seriously. And I want to say this and, and perhaps this might come across as sounding quite hard even. To turn your back on that is a dangerous thing to do. God takes that commitment, that declaration seriously and to go back on that or to drift away or to choose another pathway in life is serious. I'm not going to pull any punches whether we feel uh, whether this is too hard or not. I'm not trying to say this by way of manipulation either but to drift out of fellowship with God, to move out from what you once declared ultimately incurs the wrath of God. It's quite serious. It's quite heavy. It's not uh, being said to try and manipulate people back into the kingdom or back into the church. That would belong in the realm of a cult. That actually comes from the scripture because once you move yourself out from that, uh, that covenant relationship with God, you're exposed. And Naomi persevered, actively persevered. That's something that we need to do as well she said may the lord deal with me be it ever so severely if anything but death separates me from you and this was her acknowledgement of the seriousness of the covenant that she was making before the lord it's the same for us when we declare our faith in christ a lot of commentators like to contrast these two women naomi uh, and ruth naomi with her struggling faith and ruth with this magnificent declaration and I guess there's a temptation and perhaps some risk even in doing that and perhaps one of the risks is this the risk of missing the greatest lesson of this chapter Uh, and we touched on this last week one of the greatest lessons of this chapter is that no matter what your circumstances no matter how terrible no matter how difficult God is at work God's sovereign hand is in that place And one of the other lessons that we might take away from this chapter is no matter what your background, no matter what your circumstances, God can use you to be a blessing beyond yourself. Could Ruth ever have conceived the possibility that she would be an ancestor of the king? Could she have ever conceived the possibility that she would be, and I think I worked this out, it's about uh, 42 or 45 generations back, but she nevertheless was related to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. This chapter is a reminder to us that God can do amazing stuff. And in that sense, it's a chapter of hope. It's a chapter that finishes with hope, as I said last week too, uh, when Naomi and Ruth uh, returned to Judah, when they arrived in Bethlehem. That word, of course, means house of bread. When they arrived there, Uh, They arrived just as the barley harvest was beginning, just when there was food about to be able to be put back on their table. God ordained that that would happen. That's his timing at work. It's perfect timing. It always is. With our Lord, there is always hope. We're going to pray and uh, just acknowledge that God brings us hope, whatever our circumstances. So join me, please. Let's pray together.
Lord, again today we want to say thank you for this chapter from your word, a chapter that is filled with hope, a chapter that uh, opens our eyes and our hearts to your work, even though in our own circumstances there are times when we can't see it. We thank you, Father, that as we reflected last week, though Naomi's faith and her theology was sometimes a bit ragged, it was truthful and it was honest and in that sense Lord there's an encouragement for us because there are times when our faith and our theology is under stress but we recognise that you Lord are at work, you were at work in Naomi's life, you're at work in our lives. We thank you Lord for the lessons from the life of Ruth. We thank you that as is always the case you are the master chess player in history You have worked through your people through history. You've worked through Ruth and her circumstances, uh, ordained that your purposes would be realised and we're encouraged by that. We're challenged by that too, Lord, because that reminds us that even our lives in your hands are significant. Our role as mothers or fathers or brothers or sisters or sons or daughters are significant roles. The role that we have in the life of the Christian community, the influence that we have, the capacity that we have to bring change is really significant when we are filled by you and when your spirit's at work in us. So Father, help us today to dream your dreams for us. Dream your dreams for our church. See what you have before us as we continue to reach out into this world and this community, our neighbourhoods and our homes. Lord God, we thank you again for your precious word in Jesus' name. Amen.